morning, and, and I, I have five pages of notes that I want to talk about. I don't believe we'll ever get through that. But this morning we're talking about the activity of Jesus, ascension. Now, typically, when the church or when pastors and teachers talk about the various stages, if you would, aspects of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' life, obviously the incarnation, you know, the conception in Mary and the birth of the Son of God, having taken to himself a human body and soul, So obviously the birth of Jesus is important. And then we move along and we look at the ministry of Jesus for three and a half years and there's some things that are important we think about, whatever. But what's in our view, in our view, what is the next major step in Jesus' life? The birth, the death, typically. After the death comes the great resurrection. And these are the three major events that we typically emphasize. And so when it comes to the, to the ascension, it's almost like it's an afterthought. Okay, he's raised and now he's going on. He's going on. You know, he's with us. He's going on and he'll come back one day and whatever. And the great calamity, the great calamity, spiritually speaking, in reference to our understanding, in reference to the significance of this event is that we have not, generally speaking, not everyone, the church, generally speaking, has not made much of the ascension. And that is a great tragedy. The ascension of the Lord Jesus is as important as any and every other aspect of his life. In fact, from the conception in Mary of the Son of God to become a human being, to the return of Christ for the church to rule and reign forever as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, there's not one event, there's not one word, there is not one aspect of ministry. There is nothing in Jesus' life that is less or more significant than everything else. Can you say amen? Amen. Why? Because if one word of the Lord Jesus given, given to him by the Father through the Spirit to speak, one activity given to him from the Father by the Spirit, to heal or to walk on water or to do whatever. If one event that he doesn't do it, there is no salvation. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that way? Absolutely everything about the life of Christ is absolutely, intricately, and comprehensively significant that to leave out any, in in our mind, any of the least, 
is to have nothing. Now, that's the comprehensiveness of God's work. And we must be careful to understand the ministry of the incarnation of God's Son for the Father's purpose of redeeming a people to himself as begun in Genesis and as stated in Genesis 1.26, that absolutely everything of his life is as significant as everything else. Do you get this? Do we understand what I've said today? I don't want to go any further if you don't get this. So that means even one word given to Jesus by the Father through the Spirit to speak. If he refused to, what happens? Everything is lost, right, Darlene? Even one word. Everything is lost. So we come, if you would, and we, we as human beings do this, and it's okay to do this. We accents, accentuate certain activities. Okay, it's okay to do that as long as we don't think that this activity is more important or transcends other activities, okay? Because Jesus kneeling down, putting dirt in his hand, spitting in it, And putting it on the eyes of the man in John 9 is as significant to the eternal plan of God for our redemption as anything else. Do you believe that? Do we see that? I want to know if we see that. Do we see that? So we need to be very careful how we view the ministry of the incarnate Son of God. We must be sure that we see it not only linear, linearly, how do you say linear? Linearly, that's how you say it, linearly. As a, yeah, but my tongue doesn't know it sometimes. I have to speak to my tongue, wake up. And we not only see it linearly, linearly, is that it? Linearly. And literally, but we also must see it, and this is where we fail. When I say fail, we, we kind of, a week in this era, we must see the ministry of God through his son. The ministry of God the Father through the Son by the Spirit, the Trinitarian work of God, as comprehensively as God sees it, okay? So this morning we talk about the ascension. No, I'm not going to get through all my notes. Okay, I understand that. So when we think of the significant events of the life of Jesus, we will always say, yeah, his birth, got to have his birth. Without his birth, there'd be no salvation. Okay, we get that. Without his death, there'd be no salvation. We get that. Without his resurrection, there'd be no salvation. And that's basically where we stop. But everything that is contained in the word, it is finished. Where is that? You must know where that is. It is finished. Where is it? You must, you must know these verses. Come on. John chapter 19, verse 30. It is completed. All is over. I've done it all. Amen? You must know this. Everything that is contained in it is finished. That great 
victory cry of the Son of God at the cross that everything has been accomplished as to the procurement or the purchase of our salvation. It is finished is a Greek term, telestai, meaning it is fully, finally, and forever paid in full. What is paid in full? The debt of our sin, which is what? Death is the curse, and Jesus is now going to swallow up death when death puts his arms around Jesus. And when death encloses its arms around the Lord Jesus as to his body and he dies, death then will be swallowed up. Everything is finished. And then we see the proclamation of that in reality and the Father's acceptance of the death of Jesus as to the payment of our sin. How do we know that the Father accepts the blood of Jesus as to the payment of our sin? How do we know that? Say it again. The resurrection. We must get these things straight in our minds. It is finished. Well, how do you know it's finished? The resurrection. What proves is finished? The resurrection. What proves Jesus is the Son of God? The resurrection. What proves God loves us as told by Jesus? The resurrection. Without the resurrection, we ain't got nothing. But without the incarnation, what? We don't have anything. And without absolutely every ounce of obedience of the Son of God in all the totality of his life, we have nothing. Nothing. Now, in the resurrection, there is a man on earth in whom the totality of God's purpose for us is completed. Got it? In whom the totality of God's purpose for us is what? completed, right? Is there any other work necessary for the completion of God's purpose in humanity as far as its completion as to the payment of the sin? Nothing. Nothing more can be done. You see, that's why our works of obedience can never add anything to the one obedient work of Christ. I say one obedient work. What is that one obedient work? His entire life is one obedient work. So now we have a man on earth in whom the totality and the comprehensive work of God in accomplishing or fulfilling that which was his purpose in creating in the first place to have a people according to his own image after his likeness so that his glory may be in them as he and man experience intimacy of fellowship forever. That's now accomplished in how many men after the resurrection? In how many men after the resurrection? How many? One. Apart from the ascension of Jesus, nothing of his work that he accomplished would be ours by experience. Apart from the ascension, it would be absolutely impossible for us to have been included in that work. There is a man 
in whom God is well pleased. A human being. For the first time, there's a human being in whom God is well pleased. With what? Not only his, his status or his position as son, but in his absolute obedience culminating in the cross. Now we have that man. God has that man on earth. That perfect man. Having accomplished all the purposes of God. Radiating the exact image of God. Remember in Colossians 1.15, he is the exact image. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint, Hebrews 1.3, of God. Remember those verses. But it must be given to us. And it will not and cannot become ours We are potentially there in Christ. But when does it become practically ours in Christ? Only after the ascension. So we don't get anything, if you would. The daddy can buy all the presents from the kids. And the present is that child's by the daddy's will. But until the daddy bestows that in a way that the child can receive and accept it and enjoy it as his own, it is not his by experience. Do we understand this? Do you get this? And so there must be an ascension. So now I'm on the third line of my first page. You see, now there is a man in heaven after the image of God in whom all the purpose of God for his people will be fulfilled. So what are some of the results of the ascension of Christ? Let's talk about some of the results first. Apart from the ascension, we would never have experienced the good of the finished work of Christ on the cross as declared in his resurrection, okay? We must have the ascension in order for all the other work of Christ to become ours personally, Oh, we're beginning to see the intense significance of the ascension. It's not just, hey, I'm going away and I'm going to come back one day. But while I'm gone, y'all do okay. You know, I'm going to do this and that and, and I'm coming back. But y'all do okay. No. This is the grand finale of God's redemptive work for his people. The ascension was as necessary was the necessary conclusion of the death and resurrection of Christ for our salvation, or if you would, the culmination. The ascension was God's final work that applied all that Jesus had accomplished in his earthly incarnation to our good. And you're going to notice I often will say earthly incarnation as opposed to what? Heavenly incarnation. Because remember, when the Son of God became incarnate, when the Son of God took to himself a human body and soul, that incarnation activity not only continued on earth, but will continue for how long? Forever. 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 So the incarnation doesn't stop with the death or the resurrection of Jesus. It's now forever. It is the final result of Christ's ascension that we receive the power to be saved and to be sanctified. You see, Jesus now has been raised from the dead. God is now prepared 
to apply the forgiving power of the blood of Christ to his people so that they may come into his presence and fellowship with him. Did you understand what I just said? God is now ready to do what? Apply the blood of Christ, which is shed for our forgiveness so that we may become God's people. But God will do that only one way. He will only do it as the Son of God, as to his humanity, is given authority to apply that. As to his humanity. Remember, it was as to the humanity of the Son of God that he purchased our salvation. Certainly, his divinity is obviously involved, but it is not the divine Son of God who goes to the cross. It is the Son of God as to his humanity who is nailed to the cross. And the Son of God experiences that as the nature of God and the nature of man are contained in this one man. And so God the Father experiences all of the payment of the, our sin via the Son in his humanity. It was necessary for Christ to ascend to the Father so that we in him might also be brought into the presence of God. You see, if the Son of God, as to his humanity, does not ascend to the Father, then we who are in him, as to his humanity, do we understand that? As to his humanity, can never come into the presence of God the Father. It can't happen. Therefore, our entrance into heaven is absolutely bound up to the entrance of Christ as to his humanity. It's bound up to his entrance into heaven. So let's look a little bit. That's just page one. I'm, you know, we'll, we'll do the best we can. This morning, let's take a better look, a closer look at the Christ's earthly incarnational ministry as to his ascension into heaven. He's going to do what? The Bible says he will ascend to what? The right hand of God. So let's talk a little bit about that and go through some of this information to make sure and to clear, clarify that we understand what's happening. So the first thing is ascend. He will ascend, remember? Now, the word ascend is a, is a common word. It doesn't have any specific or... Uh, indigenous religious connotation. It just means to go up, to climb. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to go up. I'm going to climb. That's all it means. So in and of itself, it has no significance as to the faith. What you're going to creates the significance. So in Exodus 19, 18, the smoke, remember the smoke of the offering, went up. It ascended. It goes up to heaven. In Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? In other words, what? Who may go up, climb up, come up into the very presence of God? The hill of the Lord is a euphemism for the place of God's dwelling. Who may go up? Therefore, when the Bible speaks of Christ's ascension, 
the Bible is speaking about his going up into heaven. And heaven, yes, it is a place, but the significance of heaven is not as to its location. It's as to the person who inhabits and makes heaven, heaven, God the Father. So Jesus is going up. The, this man is now going up into heaven to be face to face with God the Father. This was the original purpose of God, that humanity, his people, would dwell in this face-to-face intimacy forever in his presence. But remember, sin terminated that ability. And so now, Jesus is going to go representing us and standing before God and having that intimate fellowship with God, and we are going to be participating with him and in him in that fellowship, but only if he ascends and receives the power. Second, when we speak of Christ's ascension, we're really speaking about his going up where? To the right hand of God. You've all heard of that, haven't you? The right hand of God. What does it mean when, when the, a man at work, if, if Frank Gloria owns a particular business, if he says, Joe is my right hand man, what does that mean? What does that mean? Just another guy? Well, he's my right hand. What does it mean? My second man. The man who is most significant in my business. Isn't that what it means? It doesn't exclude others, but what does it mean? It means that my right-hand man has the superior position in relation to everyone else in my business as to the performance of my will. Isn't that what it means? That's the right-hand man. I mean... Scalise, what's your name? Rooster here is helping, is rebuilding a beautiful home on St. Charles Avenue. Now, I don't know, but maybe he has a right-hand man. That means that when Rooster is there or not there, this man functions with the authority of Scalise. Isn't that what that means? You leave someone in charge. Well, maybe you don't. I don't know. Hopefully you do. You know, you may wonder why the last house you rebuilt collapsed. You didn't leave the right man in charge. No. <laughs> right-hand man. It is, it's easy. It's the p- position of authority. The position of authority. It's the position that one takes representing the boss and acting as the boss in the name and in the authority and power of the boss. And so when the Bible says Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, this is what we're talking about. So look at how it's designated. I just have a list here, a lot of scriptures related to it, and you can look those up later. Variously, the right hand is called the right hand of God. It's also called the right hand of the Lord, or Yahweh. That's typical of the Old Testament. Yahweh, the word Lord there. It's called the right hand of power. All of these are synonymous None of these are distinctive in and of themselves and separate from the others. They all are saying the same thing, but variously. The right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of the throne of the majesty. The right hand of the throne of God. The right hand of him. And so when Jesus was about to be taken up into heaven, this is what he told his disciples. Remember, he's about ready to be taken up into heaven. That's uh, my namesake, Jonathan, is another Jonathan, so we allow him to say anything he wants to while I'm speaking. 
when Jesus is about ready to be taken up and ascends into heaven, remember? What does he tell his disciples in Matthew 28, 18? Now, listen to it very carefully. What does he say? All authority. Where? In heaven. Now, wait. What does that mean? That I have been given totally by my Father the absolute authority to rule according in the Father's name, according to the Father's purpose, I am given authority to rule and to reign in the name of my Father. So, I, all authority in heaven and in earth. Oh, you follow me? Am I, am I in the right scripture here? What is the next words? What are the next words? Say what? Has been given. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, stop. What does the verb say? Has been given. What tense is that? That's a past tense. In Matthew 28, is Jesus leaving to receive power? Look at the verb. I don't want you to say Peter Davidson's teaching her heresy in here because Phil Widener and Frank Gloria are elders and they'll have me put out of the church. What is the verb? All authority in heaven and earth, what? Has been given. It's a past action that has present day continuance in its effect. Do we see that? It's not... All authority in heaven and earth will be given to me when I ascend. Steve, it doesn't say that, does it? Now, you see, too long, the church has looked at Matthew 28 and thought and assumed Jesus is going to get authority. But what does he tell you? I got this. I got it. I already got the authority. For those of you who like that kind of grammar, I got it. It's been given to me. So let me tell you what you do. I'm leaving. But before I leave, I want to let you know, I have all authority. So go, go make, all, make, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and observing all things whatsoever. Remember that? All authority in heaven and earth has been given. If Christ is the Son of God, how is it that he says all authority has been given to him? If he's the eternal son of God, how can it be that the eternal son of God has been given authority? So let me go through this with us. As the eternal son of God who is ever equal with the father and with the spirit, the son of God possesses in himself all of the nature and the essence, the attributes, the qualities, the character of God. So I've said it this way a number of times in the past. The Son of God is completely and totally God in himself, but not by himself. 
He's not less equal with the Father and the Spirit. They are not less equal with him. This is not a division of each has one third. Each person of the Trinity has 100% divinity. How does that happen? Does that even make sense? Each person is absolutely forever, totally, comprehensively God in himself, but not by himself. So that means that the Son of God has all power and all authority just as the Father has all power and all authority, just as the Holy Spirit has what? All power and all authority. For how long? Forever and ever. There is no diminution, diminishing to any extent whatsoever of any aspect of the nature of of the essence, of the character, of the ability of any person of the Trinity. And if they were, that person could not be God. Are we getting this? So we learned this when we went through all of this a while back. Since each person of the Trinity... Cannot be distinguished from the other persons of the Trinity by nature, by attributes, by character. They can't be distinguished. They are indistinguishable as to their essence. So, Steve, what distinguishes the Father from the Son from the Spirit? The roles. Or the function. The roles distinguish. The roles distinguish. I'm not going to go through it, but if you will look at Ephesians chapter 1, some of the most important verses in the entire Bible as to the Trinitarian roles. Chapter 1, Ephesians, verses 3 to 14. In verses 3 to 6, the Father's role. In verses 7 to 12, the Son's role. In verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit's role. But each person of the Trinity is absolutely possessing of the entire essence and nature of divinity in himself, but what? Not by himself. So how is it that the Son of God can say, All authority has been given because if all authority has been given, that means that there was a time when you did not have all authority. Are you with me on this? Are you with me with the grammar? You see, you should have paid attention to your English teacher years ago. You should have understood them verbs and them pronouns and adjectives and all that kind of stuff. If all authority is given, that means that all authority had to be given in order to have authority. And without having it been given, you didn't have it. Is this deep? This isn't too deep, is it? Okay. All right. This isn't deep. This is normal. If I am given the authority to be Frank's right-hand man, that means there was a point when I did not have that authority. Right, Frank? You had to do what? At a time, you had to decide and you give it to me. Before that, I don't have the authority. But the Son of God has always had the authority. Can anyone say that the Son of God, that there was ever a time when the Son of God did not have full authority? Because if he doesn't, he's not God. Right? All power. He's not God. 
Hmm. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Remember that? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And what happened? And the Spirit of God did what? Vibrated, hovered over the what? The face of the waters. And what happened in verse 3? And what does it say, verse 3? Say it again. And God said, Elohim, Elohim, it's plural, not El, Elohim, it's plural. And God's said, if you put almost, what? Let there be light. And there was light, you see. Listen to how this great one, this creator, who speaks in verse 3 of Genesis 1, let there be light. It is a speaking forth of God's power. Listen to how Colossians 1, 16, 17. For by him, whom are we talking about? We're talking about the Son of God. For by him, all things were created. Remember in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were, what? Created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's verse 3. So verse 3 of, first, uh, of John 1 is the same as verse 3 of Genesis 1. It's the same, same thing, if you would. And so in Colossians, Paul says this. For by him, the Son of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He creates all authorities, all things created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together or consist. Now, who is this one who tells his disciples that he's been given all authority in heaven and earth? He's created all things. How can he be given authority in heaven and earth? If he is the creator of all things, having created in the creation all dominions and rules and authorities. He created authority. How can he be given authority? He's the son of God who possesses the fullness of divine nature and all the divine prerogatives equally with the father and the son. I already quoted Hebrews 1.3. He is a radiance or the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the son of God who is fully God within himself, but not by himself. Hebrews 1.3 continues, and he upholds or sustains the whole created order by the word of his power. I mean, just, just stop for a moment. Let me stop say something. In his earthly ministry, think of this man, Jesus, walking around dusty roads, needing to sleep. I'm tired needing to eat, needing to go to the bathroom. He's a human being. And the Son of God resides in this human being. And as the Son of God resides in this human being, the Son of God is also sustaining the universe. Are you with me on this? Are you with me? Did you get that in your mind? The Son of God is in this human being called Jesus. Isn't he? God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Remember in 1 Colossians 5. 
And yet at the same time, when he's upholding this man and ministering in this man by the Spirit and this man and the Son of God, the human nature and the divine nature are an intimate fellowship and agreement in every aspect. And Jesus is on the cross. The Son of God is experiencing this, but at the same time, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. He hasn't stopped his universal or eternal work of sustaining. This is the Son of God who saves us. Amen? This is he. So don't, don't, don't decrease him and isolate him. He is in the person of Christ. As to our redemption. You see, he possesses underived life. He says, I have life in myself. His life is underived. What does that mean? It's not given to him. It is his. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Do you remember reading that somewhere? The Son of God, as the Son of God, he is the exact image of God. So since the Son has always had all authority, why does Jesus tell his disciples all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? What is he talking about? In this announcement, Christ is speaking about his incarnational ministry of Redeemer and Savior. He is talking about all authority as to my divinity. Are you with me? Yes or no? But as to his humanity. As to his humanity. We must distinguish. We must make sure we understand. The eternal Son of God has never been given all authority. He has it. It's his right according to the Father. It's his possession eternally. But he's been given it as a man, as to his humanity. And why, why is he given it that way? Because, you see, as to his humanity... Christ must bear as a man into the nature of man the full penalty for our sin. The nature of a man sinned in order for that sin to be paid for and humanity to be accepted by God. Another man in his human nature must pay the penalty for the sin. In the human nature, of course, he only had that nature of Adam. In the nature of Adam, he rebelled and sinned. In order for our redemption to be made possible, another man, as to his human nature, must not sin, but must obey perfectly. So, therefore, in order to redeem us, the Son of God takes to himself a genuine human nature without sin. It's not tainted with sin. And he lives his life absolutely comprehensively without one iota of sin. Therefore, as the absolute sinless, perfect Lamb of God, no pollution, no spots, nothing wrong, 
he can therefore justly pay the price for our sin in his human nature so that when he in his human nature pays the price and dies, therefore God can say a man has perfectly paid the price of my justice. And then God raises the body of Jesus, remember, of Christ from the grave. And now a man, as to his human nature, now lives forever having been endowed or endued rather with the what? Power of God and the acceptance of God. He does it as our substitute taking our place, but also representing us in his own human nature. And so as to his human nature, if we are going to be saved, he not only has to purchase us in that human nature as to the nature of humanity by the Son of God, Son of God. but now he also has to be empowered by God as to his humanity to then confer on us the good of his purchase. And that happens when? When he ascends. So, Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. When? He's not ascending to get it. Do do we see that clearly? Anybody have a problem with that? When does he receive all authority? We'll talk about that next week.